0: Come with me on an exploration of self-discovery. On this podcast, we decipher what really matters as we unravel the chaos of day-to-day work to learn how to build an essential life. Welcome to the What's Essential podcast. I am your guest, Greg McEwen. And I was just talking to somebody just today who, when I asked them, well, what's essential for you that you're underinvesting in? said solitude. <laughs> time for themselves. Time to think. Time to meditate. Time to pray, even, time to be away from all the noise of modern life. Who cannot relate to that sentiment? We live In a noisy world by every estimation. And while we absolutely need people and to feel connected, we also need, in a sort of hybrid way, space to escape. Escape to think, escape to focus. And that is in short supply. Unless you're Adam Schultz, who I've invited as my guest on the podcast today... Because he's like, (laughs) he's like someone who has eschewed all of this modern norms of how you have to live, of how it has to be, has been likened as a sort of Indiana Jones of our times in a sense, but that itself doesn't quite do it justice. But someone who, in a sense, inexplicably, has chosen the wilderness as his friend not the only friend, but a friend, has chosen to go on the grand adventures, but to go solo. We're going to get into the most extraordinary story, and I think you will not be the same again. As a result of this episode, you're going to learn the importance of that adventure, that solo adventure in life, to reconnect with yourself with what really matters most to you. And while you might not take the kind of adventure Adam does, I think that you'll feel inspired to create more space than you have right now. Adam Schultz, welcome to the What's Essential podcast. Oh, well, thanks for having me on it. My pleasure. Adam, can you just give us a sense of your journey? Like what? someone who knows nothing about you, who are you? Well, my name is Adam Schultz, and I'm a guy
1: who likes spending a lot of time out in the woods, in the wilderness. That's really all I am. Um, Ever since I was a kid, that was my favorite place to be. I started off just exploring the forest around my family's home, and, you know, 30 years later, I'm still doing the exact same thing, but now I'm doing it professionally uh, for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. But basically, I often say I I consider myself the luckiest guy in all of Canada um, because I get to do what I love, which is just... You know, spending as much time out in my canoe or out in the woods um, exploring. And that is really what I love most.
0: I think most people have experienced in their youth a moment or an experience. Maybe they went on a camp. They were lucky enough to do it, be out there in the wilderness. And they, they sense something out there uh, that, that's freeing, that's liberating. But normally they grow out of it. Uh <laughs> it, it reminds me a little of the the movie um uh Hook where Peter Pan grew up and he sort of forgot the joy of that childhood sensation but you didn't you did I shouldn't say it that way but you didn't grow up is this a fair thing to say
1: Oh yeah that's entirely
0: fair I wouldn't
1: object to that description I I never really <laughs> grew up um The same feeling that I had as a five-year-old when I looked at the forest behind my family's house and, you know, I found it this land of adventure, but also mystery and um, a little bit of fear that was definitely present as well. I still feel that the same way when I go out into the wilderness today, except now I'm going a little bit deeper than I did as a five-year-old, but the feeling is still fundamentally the same.
0: What, What is that feeling? Like, what is it that you find out there in the wilderness?
1: Well, to me, I mean, the wilderness is just this amazing canvas where anything is possible. I mean, it's just so full of uh, mystery and adventure and possibility. And I love the feeling of traveling through it. I mean, um, any, anything could be lurking around the next bend uh, of the river or over the next ridge of hills or over the mountain. And uh, to me, it's an incredible thrill to get to travel to these very remote places where I can literally wander even today in the 21st century for months um, without seeing another human being, and or coming across any human objects at all—no roads, no towns, no pop cans, no litter—it's a pretty, pretty special feeling. And uh, I guess, in a way, it's it, it's a feeling of of really wild independence and freedom because you're just wandering um, to your heart's content, far from any other uh, people. So there's all it's all bound up in this. Um, experience of being out in the wilderness that I find very appealing. And I don't think I'm the only one. I think that many other people feel the same way. And I think certainly if you look to the past, um, you can see throughout history, many people felt the same sort of call of the wild and the same appeal um, that I feel today.
0: This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you... Cha-ching. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. We actually spoke already, and we had a great conversation. And at the end, there'd been a miscommunication between agents and so on. And they'd sent me your new book. Where really you had asked that a previous book be sent to me, and and it really led us to say, well, let's let's do that, let's do that conversation. Why did you choose that book for this podcast? Well, the book
1: you're referring to is uh, Beyond the Trees: A Journey Alone Across Canada's Arctic, which is the story of my uh, my longest wilderness journey to date, uh, which was almost four months solo across Canada's Arctic, and. Wow. You know, as far as Canada's Arctic goes, you can't get any more wild than that. It's one of the biggest wilderness areas left on planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And by wilderness, I just mean a place where you can travel for thousands of miles and not cross a single road or highway or even come to a a town. Um, So it's a pretty special place because there's fewer and fewer places like that in our world where you can still do that sort of thing. Um, So that being pure wilderness and me being out there alone, you know, just going solo for almost 4,000 kilometers uh seemed like a a good fit for the kind of themes that you're interested in greg
0: Mm -hmm. well it was such a singular focus tell tell us how how did you prepare for a four-month solo adventure like that what what does the preparation look like i mean it's not the same as packing for a a two-week vacation right like this is different what's the preparation process well, I knew that it
1: was going to be a pretty uh, challenging journey because there was a huge variety of different uh, landscapes or terrain I would encounter, everything from mountains to uh, ice fields and icebergs and very dangerous rivers with canyons and whirlpools and waterfalls and whitewater rapids, but also, you know, vast areas of Arctic tundra where there's very little shelter, there's no trees for firewood, nothing to protect you from the elements, uh, Lightning storms, almost gale force winds, like the strength of hurricanes sweeping off the Arctic Ocean. Uh, <laughs> so there was a lot to plan and think about. I so mean, so as much really, as I love-
0: seriously, not like the two-week vacation that we normally plan for, right? Like, that's just so extreme and said with such sort of Canadian understatement. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, I did, I mean, my passion was obviously going out into the wilderness. So I'd done many journeys before, but this was the biggest uh, undertaking I'd ever attempted. And I did a lot of, you know, thinking about it and how would I uh, prepare and how would I um, succeed on this journey? And I really wanted to um, visualize my journey beforehand and try to think of any obstacles I might encounter. Like what would I do if a bear, for example... Um, came in the night and was aggressive and charged me or, you know, launched into the tent. How would I defend myself or, or maybe not attack me, but simply eat all my food rations. So I had no food rations. Well then what would I do? How would I get food? But even more at the top of my mind was just uh, my canoe. And how would I take care of my canoe if it were to be badly damaged in the ice? Like if it was crushed between ice flows or a rock um, hit it and punctured the hull, what, how would I repair it there? You know, when growing up as a kid, My father and I used to build canoes together um, using birch bark and cedar, but none of those materials are available um, in the far north because you're beyond the tree line, right? You're on the Arctic tundra. So I had to think about, well, where would I come up with materials to repair my canoe? And at the same time, it's not like you can just pack a toolbox of endless amounts of materials because I have to travel light, right? That's the most important thing is traveling as light as possible. Um, Everything has to be able to fit my canoe and I have to be able to carry it over my head or on my back when I travel between different bodies of water, between different rivers and lakes. So traveling light is very essential as well. So there was a lot of uh, thinking through different steps about, you know, what's, what's essential, what can I carry and what do I really need to get me through this journey? But um, at the end of the day, you know, I just, I sort of said, okay, well, you know, the, the time comes where you have to leave plans and theories behind and just sort of Uh, go for it. Really, you know, launch yourself out there and take whatever comes. So at the end of the day, I really just sort of set off and said, um, I think I've got a pretty good plan, but whatever I haven't thought of, I'll just deal with in the moment and take whatever comes my way and, and just handle it at the time. So that was kind of my mentality. How much weight can you bring? So in my canoe, my canoe is 15 feet long. Um, It's designed for one person, really, solo canoe. In a pinch, you could fit a second person into it. But my solo 15-foot canoe uh, really tops out around 175 pounds comfortably of gear that I could fit into that canoe. So that breaks down to about three different packs. Uh, I usually travel with two waterproof barrels, like hard plastic barrels, and I put food rations in there, uh, dried rations and just any other survival gear, first aid kits, that kind of stuff I need. And then I have my backpack, which usually has my extra pair of clothing, my sleeping bag and my tent, um, and just some bare essentials like a Swiss army knife and a hatchet and that sort of thing. But all told, you know, each of those packs weigh around 55 pounds and then a few miscellaneous items. So you're looking at a maximum of about 175 pounds, which is not very comfortable. That, that I wouldn't really would want to travel with that much, but that's the absolute maximum I could.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that Did you max out when you were making the plan? You got to 175 pounds?
1: At the very start, but then as I went through <laughs> my journey. You start um, eating. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> the weight goes down.
0: How much of that weight is just the food that you're bringing? I mean, even that alone, that you will literally not see anybody else. There's no restaurant, not one, not a single other location, no one else to rely on you have to have four months of food either with you or your ability to get that food if uh, if you were in an emergency. How much of the weight is that food? Oh, well, the food,
1: so the food is the vast majority of the weight. And I should clarify that, that even that would not last me the full four months. So mm. I did get resupplied. Um, this is something I worked out ahead of time. It was a big part of my um, planning, which is You know, the maximum I could go with food rations, which I should specify are really just energy bars, um, (laughs) granola bars and some freeze dried meals. So I only, I only, I only ate one meal a day. Yeah. No breakfast, no lunch. Um, what was one meal? What was the meal? It was usually something like lasagna or some type of pasta or rice. Um, just something really basic where I would boil water and, uh, cook it. And that would always be at night when I'd stop Mm -hmm. because during the day I was usually traveling. Um, So the rest of the time during the day, I was just eating energy bars or power bars, you know, high energy, um, high calorie foods that would fuel me to keep going. And that, but doing it that way, that would only last for about a month and a half uh, because I'm burning so many calories. I mean, if you're back home, um, you know, a a healthy young adult who's pretty active might eat 2,500 calories in a day, but Mm -hmm. out there... Uh, The wilderness takes such a toll on you that you need more like three or 4,000 calories. And even at that, you're probably still going to be burning more calories than you consume and losing weight. And certainly, I was losing weight even eating all those calories. Hmm. So I knew that about a month and a half would be about as long as I could go, and then my my food rations would be empty. Now, if I'm doing a different type of journey, sure, I could live off the land. I could catch fish. Um, I've done that sort of thing many times. That was the kind of thing I did in my childhood, You know, just going off with nothing on a trip, no food. In living off the land eating wild mushrooms and berries and plants and roots um and catching fish and doing that sort of thing but this is a different type of journey i mean in the arctic if you're going to try to just survive then you're going to be stationary you're not going to be traveling too far mm. because almost all of your day is going to be spent with uh, gathering food or hunting or fishing hmm. but my goal on this journey was different i was trying to do a journey i was trying to travel across the whole of the canadian mainland arctic which is a vast territory so for that reason. I had to get a resupply, um, which is what I did. I mean, I arranged by a, a, what we call bush pilots, which are just little tiny single-engine planes that have floats on them so they can land on lakes. Um, I had to actually arranged for him to drop uh, food supply for me beforehand, which is what people do in Canada's north. It's been a thing for the last 100 years going back to the 1920s. There was still some um, concern that maybe I wouldn't find the food ration or it would get eaten by a wolverine or a bear before I got to it. Um, but that, that was the
0: plan essentially. So just to be clear, you've got no satellite imagery. Do you, do you have a phone with you?
1: Yes. Well, no, I have, I have satellite imagery. Um, but like I print out satellites for, uh, images for the most important parts of my route, but there's big stretches where I don't need it because I know how to navigate (laughs) if I'm on a river, for 300 kilometers, so long as I keep going in one direction, I should be fine and stay to the main branch of the river. Don't take any of the forks. Um, so I have topographic maps and satellite imagery. But even even in uh, the far north, a lot of sab- satellite imagery is not high resolution. It's not like what you would pull up if you're looking at, say, the city of Los Angeles or even Yellowstone National Park, right? That that imagery can be very crisp and very detailed. For much of the planet, especially in very remote areas, that's not what you would get if you actually go to the satellite image. It's a very grainy and blurry image <laughs> that doesn't show you all the details. Right. Um, but I you know, I have basic maps. I mean, there can be some mistakes on them in the finer details, but I generally know just intuitively uh, which direction to go because I'm moving from west to east. Mm-hmm. So navigating with the sun and with landforms right just moving with the sort of the the landscape crossing one lake going on to the next lake so i have a pretty good feel even without the maps uh where it is i'm heading which really is not as complicated as it sounds i mean think about it if think of the united states instead of being home to 330 million people was home to just a few hundred thousand and you're going to do a journey from the atlantic to the pacific right you kind of know like we're not We're not totally um, in the dark. You would kind of know, like, okay, there's the Rockies. (laughs) Keep going west across the plains until I hit the mountains, then Uh, get over these mountains, and then follow
0: the river. No, no. Adam, I think you're (laughs) seriously overrating uh, the rest of us when you say that. I I think you just kind of know that you were approximately in, in, in what? No. Nobody's like, it's pretty simple, you say. There were unbelievable obstacles. Shifting ice flows, swollen rivers, Fog-bound lakes, gale-force storms. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, piece of cake, pretty simple. Uh, What what was the biggest challenge you found as you went on your canoe on this 4,000-kilometer adventure?
1: Well, from a physical point of view, the hardest challenge was often the wind, uh, because the wind, as we said, could be extremely powerful. And when you're in a 15-foot canoe, it doesn't really take a whole lot to uh, sink you, right? (laughs) If a wave gets to a certain size, three, four feet, it can come right over the canoe and, and flood it and swamp it and sink you. And even if even if you're not in danger of, of sinking, it can just be very difficult to canoe um, into very strong headwinds, especially if you're by yourself, right? Two people in a canoe makes a world of difference. Then you've got two paddlers using all their muscles and all their energy and strength together to try to overcome that wind. But with one person, it gets difficult in ways that maybe aren't immediately obvious um i would use the expression when i'm doing one of my journeys that can't take your hands off the wheel ever uh because you know (laughs) i can spend all day battling the wind and the wind is driving me in a direction i don't want to go right it could be throwing me into cliffs or rocks or just simply driving me back across the lake i'm trying to traverse and if i'm like oh i'm desperate i need to drink some water i need to get my water bottle out well that's a problem when you're by yourself because (laughs) now i have to set down my paddle and reach for my bottle but there's no one steering the canoe and the wind i'm at the mercy of the wind so it's going to drive me so you sometimes have long stretches where you can't take a sip of water you can't eat anything you can't do anything because you just have to battle that wind until you get to a safe spot where you can anchor or go into shore and uh, relax but that can be hazardous because when you get closer to shore that's usually where you get most of the surf and the waves are starting to break so dealing with the wind could be a challenge and then especially if there's other Uh, factors like ice uh, blocking the route Um, that can make it even more complicated and we were talking a little bit about navigating and I said you know in a broad sense I think it's kind of intuitive you sort of know just keep going this direction but when you're on an arctic lake it can be very difficult to make heads or tails of um, the outline of the lake because you might you know you might be able to see like well is there a river that flows out of this thing or is that a dead-end bay or is that an opening into another lake I don't know it's very difficult to see Um, so you're navigating, you're battling the waves, you're sort of multitasking and figuring out all these things. So yeah, those are some of the big factors, wind essentially.
0: You're reminding me as you say this, like, oh yes, you know, you pretty much could walk, you know, any of us could walk a hike, a, you know, adventure from west to east over thousands of miles, right? Which again, there's, there's this research that's been done on this idea that, that people, the people without a physical object to look at, without something clear to navigate towards, do in fact walk in circles. <laughs> so what, what, is, what is the true north, so to speak, as you're making this adventure? How, how do you make sure you're not just getting lost along the way?
1: Well, again, I'm, I would actually say I have it pretty easy because north of the tree line, you, uh, you can navigate a little bit easier because there aren't any obstructions, right? You don't have spruce and pine trees blocking your view. So on the Arctic tundra, um, you can see long distances. And that's what I would often do, you know, just navigate intuitively by saying, I can see that mountain on the horizon and I'm going to keep it in my sight. And uh, that mountain might be in, in view for a long time because I'm just getting closer and closer and closer, traversing this huge distance. Or it might not be something as dramatic as a mountain. Sometimes it was just a ridge, Or, uh, you know, a high hill or something like that, or a boulder, even a boulder on the distance. So I could navigate like that for a long period of time. And also just coming to a river, right? If I know this river is flowing in a certain direction, then for the next number of days or weeks even, all I have to do is follow this one river until eventually I might have to leave it and set off over land again. But... Uh, so, following the natural landforms helps a lot. Now, admittedly, if you're farther south, it can be more difficult if you're in a dense forest and you can't see more than a few feet in any direction. Mm. Then you've got to use the sun. At a more southern latitude, that's what I do on my journeys. Um, if I'm just south of the Arctic, in the, what we call in Canada the subarctic forest, uh, then I navigate with the sun to make sure that I'm not going around in circles mm-hmm. uh, and just using, you know, just trying to remember everything I see, which if you spend a lot of time in nature, it's not too hard to do uh, because everything starts to look distinct. Like, oh, you know, that, that ain't that mushroom or that tree. I, I've seen that. I've committed it to memory. I'm not going to come back to it. Just like if you're in a city or something, you remember a certain store or street corner, right?
0: What did you find was the most treacherous moment of your 4,000-kilometer adventure?
1: The most treacherous moment overall. Yes.
0: The moment, was there a moment that you felt that you might die? That I might die? Yeah. Uh, No, I don't
1: think I ever felt like I was in, uh, that I might die on that journey. On some of my other adventures, maybe. Uh but there were some white knuckle moments when I was far from land. Mm. When you're canoeing far from land, like you're, you you could be literally a couple miles from the nearest bit of land.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh that can be
1: a little bit stressful. You know, usually I would only do that if the weather was calm, but even on a calm day, um you just think, well, what if something went wrong, I'm far from land. And of course the water temperature there it's only a few degrees above freezing, right? The water is very, very cold, even in the middle of summer. So mm-hmm. if you fall into it, it won't take too long until you get hypothermia. And if you get hypothermia far from land, your limbs are going to seize up. Um, even with a life jacket, you're not going to get anywhere. So mm-hmm. it's very important to stay calm, stay relaxed in those situations. How do you do uh, that? Well, you just sort of think, like, you know, it's all mental, right? Like every time you,
0: hold on, Every time you say, you know, I don't know. Because <laughs> I've not been two miles out in a frozen yeah. wasteland in the middle of a two, you know, 2,000 kilometers in, nobody around, no way of communicating. Like, no, I, I don't know. What did you do in that moment? Well, I,
1: I just say you have to stay calm and tell yourself, like, even though you're canoeing across an Arctic lake, hundreds of miles from any other humans, and the water's freezing cold... The actual physical component of the canoeing is no different than if you were on just some cottage country lake on a warm July day, right? Mm. It's same exact physical component. Just paddle and don't flip your canoe and you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, so you just sort of relax and then you start to enjoy, you know, look at the beauty. These these Arctic lakes are often very beautiful. Like the water is crystal clear. You can see 100 feet down mm. um, and the landscape wow. is pretty beautiful. So I usually try to tell myself, you know, actually... Um, cherish all the good things around you and, you know, relax uh, and you'll be fine. That's what I, that's what I try to do. Um, Mm. But you asked about the most treacherous moment. Yes. The most treacherous moment was actually uh, not something that was immediately life threatening to me, Mm. but just very difficult for the journey where I was actually traveling up a river and because the river, I had to go up against the current. I mean, I, there was no other option, right? If you're doing a 4,000-kilometer journey across the Arctic, there's no easy way to do it. Inevitably, no matter what kind of route you devise, there are going to be times when you have to travel against the current, against the flow. So I was going up a river um, that had a very powerful current, so powerful, in fact, that there was no way to travel um, in the canoe. Like, paddling wouldn't work. I would just get swept back downriver. So I was traveling along the, the bank, along the rocks, and using a rope, Uh, to pull my canoe down through the water, right? So I had a rope tied onto the bow of the canoe, and I'm actually hoisting the canoe through the water as I climb along the shore. And uh, all of my gear, everything I have, all my survival equipment, my food, everything is inside this canoe. Mm. And most canoeists, most wilderness canoeists, they're very reluctant to do this for good reason, because it's pretty much as, as, as risky a thing as you can do, right? Because there are rapids, there's very strong currents and eddies, and there are hidden rocks just beneath the waterline. And if you're not 100% correct, your canoe catches the the current the wrong way, an eddy or a wave, it can easily flip over. And if it flips over, it doesn't matter if you're the world's strongest man, you have zero chance of holding onto that rope because Mm. just think of a 15 foot canoe upside down in the water with all that current flooding it, it's gonna weigh a ton and uh, get swept down, down river and you'll never recover it. So there was a moment where I came within about an inch of, uh, flipping the canoe where mm. I was going up river, you know, just mile after mile. So I've been doing this all day, every day, and you're just trying to stay focused and not, not zone out. And the bow of my canoe just started to catch a wave wrong. And, uh, you know, my heart stopped for a second. Cause I saw it happening where the canoe was starting to tip and it started to fall on its side and the water started to lap over the gunnels And in that moment, it was like a split second. If I was one second sooner, my canoe was gone, um, and there'd be nothing I could do about it. Uh, And your instinct, all of your instincts are telling you to hold on to that rope for dear life, hold on as tight as you can, but that's the wrong thing to do. If you do that, it's game over. Loosen up, right? Let out slack, uh, and let the current push the canoe back downriver, and it would right itself, Hmm. which is what I did. Um, But in that moment, out of my whole 4,000-kilometer journey, I think that was the most... Uh, heart-stopping moment and I had to take a second and be like (sighs) let out a deep breath and be like that was really close um but then once I let out that deep breath I immediately continued and just went right back to what I was doing because I said you gotta get back in the saddle and don't dwell on that just keep going (laughs) I
0: I love that image of what your instinct is is to pull why wouldn't that work just just explain the, the physics of that moment
1: so, if I pulled the canoe with the rope tied onto the bow like that, and it's going sideways into the wave, it's just going to pull it right into the wave, and the wave is going to flood the canoe. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how strong I am, I can't overcome the force of this river flooding mm-hmm. my canoe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, it's just going to make the tip, it's going to finish what's already happening. So, mm-hmm. the, only, the only option is actually let the rope go slack, so the wave pushes the canoe back upright and it goes down river, which really is a bit nerve wracking, right? To mm-hmm. let the rope go slack, but that's what I did. And the current carried the canoe back into sort of a little, uh, backwater, a little eddy where I could recover it and, uh, resume. And I tried to resume as quickly as possible, right? When something like that happens, um, I really believe in getting right back in the saddle and just going right back at it <laughs> and keep going up river and navigating in this sort of challenging way because I feel like if you take too much time to just sort of reflect on what might have been, then you almost psych yourself out, right? It's like, oh, I've lost my nerve. So mm-hmm. that's why I was kind of like, okay, take a deep breath and then just get right back at it. There's mm-hmm. no point in dwelling on what might have almost happened because it didn't happen mm. um, and just keep going. So that was kind of my mindset.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's absolutely necessary. I've been reading a, a really interesting book called um, – uh, called the Lonely Gods. Are you familiar with this book?
1: Uh, no, I don't think so.
0: Uh, I, I want to seriously recommend it to you. It's a. It's. I, I won't get into all of it right now, but one of the observations of the of the author, this is a. Uh, this is. It, it's based in Los Angeles, but at the very, very beginning of Los Angeles, there's a couple of thousand people there, and it's the main character is the son of a of a, of a man who's been who his father who's been killed while he was a child, and he's had to be raised in the wilderness and one of the things he observes he said the people that live out in the wilderness at this time you know the the cowboys really I suppose or what was then of course called the, the, the Indians these people he said they might not have much formal education they might not even be reading really at all he said but every one of them has a certain particular kind of intelligence because they have to solve problems that are, no, are never the same as the last problem. They have to deal with the reality of right now, what it is, and so that they're living in the, in the rawest sense of the word and they, they, it keeps their minds in his view sharp and smart as they're going. I love the description and I thought you would just so appreciate it given the experience you have. Your thoughts?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I I, th- I think if you think of like, as you were saying, Los Angeles and 200 years ago, um, on the frontier in a very wild place, you had to be um, highly competent to survive. And, it, and if you weren't, uh, you know, nature had a way of weeding you out pretty quickly, because you, if you made a mistake in an environment like that, there was no margin for error, right? If you you made some mistake with a with a rattlesnake, or you didn't uh, secure your horse at night, and it bolted, or something bad happened. You didn't know how to fire in water. You weren't good at starting a fire. You got lost. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't survive. So uh, it would make sense that because they had to be masters of their environment in order to survive there.
0: Yeah, com- yeah, that
1: seems to make perfect sense
0: to me. Competent or die.
1: Yeah, we are, we're very
0: lucky nowadays in the 21st century. In some ways. <laughs> <laughs> There's lo- lots of space to be to be somewhere on the competence continuum and you can still make it. Tell me about this encounter you have with the polar bear. You're in your canoe. Where are you at this time? Oh, I was
1: up near the coast of Hudson Bay, which is sort of like polar bear alley, uh, especially late in the summer because when the sea ice melts on Hudson's Bay, All the polar bears come ashore, and at that time of year, they're essentially fasting because they don't have any seals to eat. They can only hunt seals when there's ice out on Hudson Bay. So I generally try to avoid being on Hudson Bay late in the summer. But this was 10 years ago, and I couldn't avoid it. I was mapping a river there for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, and I was alone. And I was coming down river when I saw in the distance this huge white thing looming out of the water, which looked like an iceberg. Uh, but when the iceberg started to move, I realized this is actually the largest polar bear I have ever seen in my life. It was a massive adult male, like one of the biggest polar bears out there, uh, weighed well over 1,000 pounds and had a big hump on its back. And I'd seen a few okay, polar hold on. bears. Hold
0: on. What do you think in that moment when you well, see that? <laughs> What's the internal – I mean I know you're like Mr. Expedition, but I mean in that moment, you think What?
1: Well, if I'm being entirely honest, I thought I might be able to get a decent photo of this one uh, because I'd seen polar bears before as well as many other polar bears. And for the most part, they weren't really that aggressive. Plus I was in my canoe, so I probably felt a little bit safer in my canoe than I would on foot. Now, that said, polar bears can swim incredibly fast. They can swim faster than anyone can battle a canoe. But still, I guess psychologically in my canoe, I feel like a little bit more secure. So I was thinking it's probably going to go away. And I won't be able to get a hug of it.
0: But still, that that's such a that's such an understatement. But still, I mean, so was the polar bear in the water? No, it was. No, it was in the water. It was in the water,
1: but it was so big that it could, uh, other than in the very middle of the river, it could actually touch the bottom. So it turned around 180 degrees because it had its back to me as I was. Um, coming down river, and then you know, either caught wind of me or heard my approach, but it turned around in the river and it started swimming up river in my direction. But it didn't have to swim very far before it could actually touch the bottom of the river. The river is no more than waist deep, and then it kind of rose up on all fours and approached that way closer and closer to me. And as it was approaching me, I mean, I'm
0: not a fool. <laughs> I mean, people people, <laughs> I'm people not a fool. Hold on, that's uh, that's you can't take that. I, I, of course you're not, but I, I, but, but you can't take that for granted in this moment. You, you are, you are how close to this polar bear? Well, it, it got to with the closest
1: point it came to me was in, within 40 feet. 40 feet's nothing. No, not with a
0: polar bear. <laughs> They're and, fat. And, and it's coming straight at you. Yes. And you are doing what? You are paddling fast? No. And, and, and why not?
1: Well, first I was recording with my camera. And then when it came within about 40, well, maybe 50 feet, I set the camera down and I picked up my shotgun. And normally I don't carry a gun on my expeditions, but on this one I did because I was around so many polar bears mapping this river um, that I carried one with me. And I, you know, the last thing I'd ever want to do is shoot a polar bear, but this one kept coming closer and closer. So it got to the point where I actually had my shotgun loaded the safety off, and I was aiming and looking down the barrel square on the chest of the polar bear as it's approaching me, and it's growling at me, so it's clearly aggressive. Uh, But I was very resolute. I made up my mind that I wouldn't actually pull the trigger unless it was literally a matter of life and death. And I know other people who've had encounters with polar bears, and they've been like, no, I opened fire immediately as soon as it came within 100 feet or something like that. But I was determined not to do that. And it got closer and closer and closer. But of course, I'm not stationary. I'm, I'm drifting in the water in my canoe. And I could drift closer or I could drift further away. I was hoping the current would carry me further away. But it was a real dilemma because if I have both hands on the gun, then I can't steer my canoe. But if I set down the gun and pick up my paddle and the bear charges, I won't have time to pick the shotgun back up again. So I was just sort of trusting that the current would carry me away from the bear or that the bear would back off. The bear didn't back off. It kept coming closer, but there was you know, some, quite a swift current in this river, some small rapids and things, and it carried me a little downstream. And when I got a little bit more distance between me and the bear, that's when I felt, okay, now is the time to set down this gun and paddle and put some more uh, distance between us and keep hmm. going downriver, which is what, what I did.
0: What was the life and death distance for you? So 40 it, it, feet
1: isn't it, what is it? It would actually have to charge. So it wasn't charging. It was just moving towards me. But if... If it just kept moving, then that I didn't feel like it was actually going to you know, attack me. But if it actually started to charge, that's when I would have pulled the trigger.
0: Tell me, speaking of making it, tell me, you said not on this trip, but there have been times on other trips where you have really felt like this might be the moment. Well, what's one of those moments that stands out for you?
1: Well, there's been a there's been a few of them, just very dicey moments um, canoeing on large bodies of water, on salt water, on the Arctic Ocean, far from shore, and just battling big waves and taking every ounce of my uh, mental and physical stamina to get through that, and just thinking like you know we are on a knife at knife's edge here, uh, my canoe and I, because if we flip, we're far from land. There's no one around for hundreds of miles to help us. And the water is freezing cold and we're battling big waves. Now, <laughs> I've been lucky. I've never actually capsized, you know, every time I make it through, but there wow. have definitely been moments where, you know, I call them white knuckle moments where I'm like, okay, this is unpleasant and I don't really want to find myself in this situation again, but, uh, it, it I mean, it happens. Right. Um, but I try to try to be as, as careful as I can in those situations. There's been other ones. Um, uh, once I went over a waterfall, got swept over an unmapped waterfall on one of my expeditions. And uh, that was a little bit uh, of a challenge to get back up to the surface at the bottom of that thing. But, you, um, but that doesn't
0: count as capsizing?
1: Oh, well, that does. But see, as a canoeist, I think of that as a different category, which is not dealing with uh, waves far from shore. That's actually on a very narrow river where you're doing like, yes, white I water. Yes, I hear you rapids and rocks and things so if you're talking about rapids no that's different yeah i have capsized um more than once in rapids uh but i don't know in rapids you know the shore is not too far so you're hopefully with a life jacket you have a good chance of getting back to the shore you really don't want to capsize on the arctic ocean far from shore that's a different scenario altogether that's mm-hmm. really really bad especially mm-hmm. uh, you know, by yourself um, so <laughs> yeah you could those say are that some of the, yeah, so those are some of the things that come to mind. Forest fires are another hazard, too, that you don't necessarily think of right off the top of your hmm. top of mind. But uh, there are sometimes big forest fires in northern Canada that can uh, burn up vast areas. And as you probably know, forest fires travel extremely fast, right? right. Far faster than you can possibly travel on foot or in a canoe. Um,
0: Unbelievable so- speeds. I've actually – I was in Ca- California and <laughs> listened to this. I feel so <laughs> – so – so um- how do you say uh, so mortal uh, in giving the example? But but I was there when the fires were coming through, and we had a mandatory evacuation at home. And 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 that that the night uh, that that we got the mandatory evacuations, that fire's moving like an acre per second. That's just like a speed that I think, you know, most of us just don't even can't really comprehend that fire can move that fast. And so you have you been caught in that kind of fire.
1: No, I always try to avoid them. I mean I've been out on many expeditions and uh, journeys when I've had forest fires around me. Um, when I've had to deal with the smoke from forest fires for weeks on end uh, there was you know I couldn't even see the sun because of all the the haze and the smoke um, but I try to avoid any area where there might be a forest fire. Um, so I've been pretty lucky and I hope to keep it that way. If there's a forest fire in an area then I would try my best to avoid it. You um, know what would I do just as I'm paddling here? if a forest Mm -hmm. fire suddenly appears, you know, and pretty much the only thing I can do is canoe out to the center of the, the lake and actually do what I just said I wouldn't want to do, which is flip myself into the water and put Mm -hmm. the canoe over my head to protect myself and just sort of tread water holding on to the sides of the canoe, um, with the hull over my head protecting me. So I have a space to breathe. I'm in the water up to my neck and I'm sort of bobbing in my life jacket with the hull of the canoe protecting me as far out, um, into the lake as I can get away from the, the shoreline until the fire passes, hmm. and then hopefully I can go back to shore.
0: The the, the contingency planning, the, the the sort of endless, I, mean, I suppose if you're totally solo as well, not just the preparation for it, but when you're actually out there, you're thinking about contingencies all the time with what's going on around you. This is part of the sharpening, I think, that that is talked about uh, in The Lonesome Gods. Um, tell me how did you feel when you actually get to your destinations you you get to baker lake you've gone through all these maze of obstacles you arrive what is your sensation at the completion of this you know singular mission Uh, four months to execute it but of course much longer to plan what's your sensation as you're getting there
1: well, it was sort of bittersweet. Um, I mean, there was a part of me that was, uh, you know, happy to have successfully brought my journey to a close. And uh, I would be lying if I said I wasn't looking forward to some food <laughs> like yogurt. <laughs> I is, that you be you, craving that.
0: is that what you've been craving? Y- yogurt was what you've been craving?
1: Yes. I think if you go out into the wilderness for like a couple of weeks, you might end up craving a pizza or something like that. But if it's multiple months, then it's you know, all the things that have been deprived from your diet. So I just really wanted some orange juice and yogurt or something like that. But so there was part of me that wanted that. And, you know, I was like, I wouldn't mind taking a shower and having a (laughs) a clean pair of clothes, but there was another part of me that really didn't want my journey to end and actually lingered towards the end. Um, you know, where I could have gone faster, but I slowed the pace down because I was like, ah, this is really bittersweet. There's a part Mm. of me that has so, um, loved this, this journey, the solitude and the, Majestic beauty of the north, and I really don't want it to end. And I wish I could just keep going. Um, so it was a little bit bittersweet because, in some ways, you know, being out in the wilderness. The irony is, is that I often think of it as not being stressful um, compared to modern life. Right? Hmm. No emails to worry about. No phone calls. No traffic. No noise. Um, you're just out there living in the moment. Your only concerns. Uh, are your immediate surroundings. You know, where do I where do I call home for tonight? Where do I put up my tent in a nice dry spot? Um, what's the sun doing? What's the wind doing? That's all. That's all that you have to worry about. So, you know, there's a part of part of that that's actually very appealing, especially as you become habituated to it and, and adjusted to that lifestyle. So uh, I think as soon as my journey ended, I immediately began thinking about when I'd be setting off in the wilderness again. Um, I was just as eager as ever to go off on another journey into the wild.
0: I think that brings us full circle because uh, I've talked to a couple of people recently who are really taking what seems not as extreme as yours, but still extreme compared to what's normally done to get away, taking a month, two months sabbaticals, cutting out social media for 30 days in a row, just these things. And as they're experimenting with this, what they report back is... Microcosm of what you just said, they, there's so much they gain with what they're giving up. A sense of well, just what you said, a yearning for more. One did it for 30 days last year, now they're doing it three months this summer. Like they really want more of that less. Uh are you are you game for a rapid fire set of questions? Sure. None of these questions should be rapid fire, they're all fairly deep questions, but I still want your just instant answers to them. How's that? Okay. I'll try my best. Adam, what's the most essential thing to you in one word? Well, my first answer was a Swiss Army Knife, so I hope that's not... <laughs> I love that answer. Why, why is that so important to you in one sentence? Well, Swiss Army Knives are very useful uh, in the wilderness. Do you do you have any special kind of knife that you use? Is it just the normal kind of? I mean, is this the same Swiss Army knife the rest of us would would get? That's what you. Yeah, prefer? I'm I'm a,
1: very much the traditionalist. I have the classic original Swiss Army knife design. Nothing fancy, just the original one.
0: What have you said yes to in your life that you have most regretted?
1: What have I said yes to? Um, I don't have many regrets. You know, I, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I consider myself maybe the luckiest guy in Canada. You know, every day I wake up, I just um, feel thankful uh, that I'm lucky enough to do the things I love. And I really don't know how I could have gotten luckier um, just being out in the wild. So I always actually try hard um, to just sort of think, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to do the things I love and spend the time in the woods. So I really couldn't say... That i have any any regrets um
0: yeah what have you said no to that you're most pleased about
1: what have i said no to well i mean i don't know if this counts but i said no i've said no to plenty of uh, media opportunities for tv shows and that kind of stuff um where i haven't really been interested in mm. in that sort of thing i often, I often say no um, to podcasts and, and interviews and this sort of thing, because I feel like yeah, it's not really it's not, it's not really what I would love to be doing, right? So um, it has to be when it comes to that kind of thing, media, that I feel like there's a connection there, um, like your podcast, Greg.
0: Um, it's, it's, so it it's, high, it's high praise. Everything you were saying there <laughs> sort, of, sort of makes me feel especially good, and I, and I already felt good about having you. What is something essential that used to be hard for you, that you've made effortless? (sighs) Something something essential that
1: used to be hard for me, that I've made effortless. Yeah. Well, it's all the non-wilderness things that I struggle with. Um, (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I'm terrible at answering emails and... uh, (laughs) Podcasts and rapid fire, all these sorts of things (laughs) that are outside my wheelhouse. Uh, But but I hope that I'm getting
0: a little bit better at
1: them, hopefully. Uh, I
0: I, I, I love that. What's something non-essential to you that you are over-investing in, right? It's not important to you, but you still feel like you're giving too much time or energy or worry about it.
1: I try. I try not to do any of that stuff. Um, I mean, I guess I could spend even less time following the news than I do. I mean, I probably consume far less news than the average person, mm. and if I cut it out even more, it probably wouldn't make any uh, negative impact on my life. So I could do even less of the news than I'm already doing. Well, I don't consume that much news, but I could cut it back even more. I, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't. I don't want to say that I totally ignore the news because I think that'd be irresponsible. Um, you know, I still have to know what's going on in our world, um, but. I feel like we really don't need to consume as much news as we do, and uh, if anything, consuming so much news has made our society more bitter um, mm-hmm. than it needed to be.
0: Well, so much of modern news isn't really news; it's sort of it's sort of uh, professional gossip. Uh, you know, so, so it's it's oh, someone tweeted about so and so, and let's do a segment on the news now, and we're analyzing that real time with no context and no expertise, and about that. And and, and so we can be consumed with, again, all of this noise. Uh, I remember somehow last time we were speaking that, I mean, what is your technology setup? I seem to recall you had to go to your sister's house in order to do this. So your normal world isn't isn't connected. Yes,
1: let's, I, is that correct? I'm in my sister's basement right now. <laughs> um, I came here to do this because my internet where I live, I live in the woods, right? Um, my house is surrounded by forest and hills, so there's no high-speed internet there. I couldn't do a uh, live stream like this. wouldn't work. Um, so I came to my sister's to do the podcast with you, which is maybe another reason why I don't do as much media as I otherwise would because it's a bit of a hassle.
0: Well, you, uh, you've put an obstacle between it so that you can spend again. You've designed a life that you want to live rather than a life other people maybe would have designed for you. What's something, this last two questions, what's something essential to you that you are under investing in?
1: Something that's essential to me that I'm under investing in. Well, I could give you an answer that would be very Canadian and I hope it doesn't disappoint you. But uh, the first thought that came to my mind was hockey.
0: Um, (laughs) It doesn't disappoint at all. Well, I do have a very
1: Canadian passion for hockey, to be honest. Um, playing or watching? Playing. You wish um, you were playing a little more. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, Well, actually, I have a pond behind my house that's frozen. And I like to shovel off the snow and go and skate on it and shoot some pucks around. And uh, that is something I very much enjoy doing. And especially when I was younger, I used to do a lot more of it. It does mm-hmm. take quite a bit of work to keep your pond Um, in shape to be able to skate on it because every time you get a snow you got to clean that snow off you don't clean it off the ice turns slushy underneath so i actually really enjoy just uh, the simplicity of skating around on a pond in the woods shooting some pucks off the trees and the logs that's a lot of fun
0: Mm. And, and what's something you could do in the next 10 minutes to make space for that you know to make it easier for you to do
1: well, I could close my laptop and go off into the woods. That's that's what, we,
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> that what, would, that's what would get you there. Uh, it is fascinating to talk to somebody who has become singular in what you want to do. And in such a, what I would describe a sort of s- a gentle manner, has said, I'm, I'm just not going to do what everybody else is doing. I'm just going to continue down this path i'm going to trust my actual experience in life not just what everyone else is doing it, it, there's something liberating about that i hope for everybody listening there's something liberating to sense well what would i do if i was living by design not by default how might i create some more space to explore to think to imagine, to dream, to go off alone. Uh, Maybe it's a sabbatical. Maybe it's a personal quarterly offsite. Maybe it's just a few minutes each day into a ritual to get out, to be in nature, to go for a walk, to spend time away from all of this noise. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Adam, thank you for being on the What's Essential podcast. Oh,
1: my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
0: We've come to that time again. It's the end of the show. And if you have found anything valuable in this episode, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. The first five people who write a review of this episode will get a copy of Beyond the Trees, A Journey Alone Across Canada's Arctic Just send a photo of your review to info at gregmckeown.com. That's I-N-F-O at G-R-E-G-M-C-K-E-O-W-N dot com. And remember that you need to be able to escape to focus. Relax today, enjoy this week, and I'll see you next week for another episode of the What's Essential podcast.